morning, I want to address the issue of abortion and explain why we're pro-life here at Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, last year, the Supreme Court issued uh, a decision in Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade and returning the issue of protecting the unborn to the states. And uh, this is an issue that's been in the news. It's divided our country. Life and death literally are at stake. And proclaiming and protecting the lives and personhood of the unborn is a pressing issue we need to address. And as we think about this issue, a key question for us as followers of Jesus is, what does the Bible say? I want to set the table by first defining what we're talking about, what, making some important definitions and distinctions, and then give a brief overview of the history of abortion and our contemporary situation. But before I do, I want to speak from my heart uh, to those of you who've had abortions. Uh, though we're a small church, I know that in a congregation our size, there's probably uh, a handful of women who've had abortions and a handful of men who in the past uh, may have encouraged their girlfriend or fiancé or wife to have an abortion, and I know this could be a hard sermon to sit through, uh, but I want you to know there's forgiveness through Christ. It's not as if abortion is some kind of unforgivable sin. I'm going to argue that it is wrong. I, I do think it's a sin, uh, but there is mercy and grace to be found through Christ. And I want to plead with you, particularly the women, uh, I've known a number of women through my counseling experience who've had abortions, and they've chosen uh, not to talk about it um, with anyone, um, to just bury it and try not to think about it, and the result is they're a mess, and that's no way to deal with it. This is one of those issues where it's one thing to know you're forgiven, it's another thing to be healed. And our local pregnancy center, Choices Women's Center, offers uh, help for women who've had abortions in their past and would like to talk about that. The counseling is one-on-one -on -one with a woman who has most likely uh, had an abortion in her past that she's had to work through. And I would encourage you to get the help. It's free. And uh, I've never heard a testimony from any woman who's had an abortion and asked for that counseling help uh, who's regretted it, but I have unanimously heard from those women that they regret the years of keeping it to themselves and trying to bury it and not think about it. And uh, for my part here up in the pulpit, I, I believe I have a responsibility before God to speak to this issue, uh, but I know this could be a hard sermon for you, and I just want to remind you that there is forgiveness through Christ. If you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, your guilt uh, and sins are gone forever. They've been paid for by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as I deal with this topic, you don't have to feel guilt. At the same time, it's important for all of God's people to understand what the Bible says about this issue. So, let's start with just a few definitions. There's three words I want to define for you that are important. The first word is embryo. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines an embryo as the developing human individual from the time of implantation to the end of the eighth week after conception. So, up until eight weeks, uh, science calls the developing baby an embryo. The second word is fetus. Uh, Webster's defines the fetus as the developing human individual from usually two months or, or eight weeks, right, after conception to birth. So, for the first eight weeks, it's an embryo. After that, till birth, it's a fetus. And then the third word we need to define carefully 
is abortion. Abortion is the deliberate expulsion of the human embryo or fetus from a mother's womb. We don't uh, use uh, a word, the word abortion to talk about the natural expulsion of an embryo or a fetus. We have another word in English for that. We call that a miscarriage, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the deliberate ending of a pregnancy so that the baby is not brought to birth. In her book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Megan Best defines abortion this way. It is the deliberate ending of a pregnancy so that it does not progress to birth. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about abortion. And in terms of its history, abortion goes back to ancient times. This is not something that the church has to deal with that's uh, some sort of new phenomena that's only possible because of advances in medical technology. All ancient cultures dealt with this subject. The first historical record we find of abortion being mentioned uh, in an inscription is on a papyrus uh, that dates to the 1550s BC in Egypt, which is, by the way, that's when Moses was alive, uh, talking about this issue. And it's the is- an issue that ancient cultures were actually very divided over. The Greeks enjoyed the dubious distinction of being the first to take a positive view of abortion, and that came primarily from philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle, but uh, they took a positive view of it not uh, as a woman's right to choose, uh, but they believed abortion should be practiced if it was in the best interest of the government or the state. Uh, But Greek doctors tended to disagree with the philosophers. Uh, You've all heard of the Hippocratic Oath, right? And originally, the Hippocratic Oath read this way, quote, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never to a view of injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause abortion. A pessary is something inserted into the mother's body uh, to cause an abortion, and the Hippocratic Oath was against abortion. Now, in our current situation, our current day, only 2% of medical schools in the United States use the full original Hippocratic Oath. Most schools have shortened it, and because they've shortened it, the prohibition against abortion has been left out. Roman law uh, allowed abortions, and uh, honestly, the reason it allowed abortions was because in Roman law, it was argued that the fetus wasn't a living person. But a number of prominent Roman philosophers, like Cicero, disagreed. And one of the frightening things I found when I went back to revisit uh, ancient history is that wherever ancient cultures um, legalized abortion, they also legalized infanticide. But what about American history? Well, there's a law professor and abortion advocate named Joseph De La Pena who's written a book called Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History, and he sums up almost 900 years of British common law and American law this way. Anglo-American law has always treated abortion as a serious crime, generally even including early in pregnancy, presenting evidence of prosecution and even executions occurring as long ago as 800 years in England, and less serious punishments in colonial America. The reason provided for those prosecutions and penalties consistently focused on protecting the life of the unborn child. This unbroken tradition tends to refute the claims that the unborn have 
not been treated as persons in our law or as persons under the Constitution of the United States. The tradition of treating abortion as a crime was unbroken through nearly 800 years of English and American history until the reform movement of the later 20th century. Uh, De La Pena is an abortion advocate, uh, and that's his summation of uh, what's happened legally in the Anglo-American world. And he uses the word reform in the positive sense. I disagree with him. But the reform movement of the late 20th century he's referring to is the movement to make abortion legal. And it has its roots in both feminism and the sexual revolution. In 1942, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood, and Sanger was one of the architects of the sexual revolution and wholeheartedly promoted abortion. And as feminism and the sexual revolution gathered momentum, they were able to influence the Supreme Court to legalize abortion through the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973. And since 1973, there have been 63 million abortions in America. Allow me to try and put that number in perspective. Approximately one million Americans have died in all our wars combined. The Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War, War on Terror. Uh, only one million compared to 63 million abortions since 1973. Or here's another way you could think of it. The current population of the six largest metropolitan areas in the United States, so that would be New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Uh, their combined population of those, the, of those metro centers, not just the city limits, but those metro centers, the combined population is 62 million people. So every single person in those metro areas could be killed overnight, and it wouldn't equal the number of abortions that have taken place since 1973 in our country. That's how massive abortion is in its scope in the United States. The Guttmacher Institute, which is a subsidiary of Planned Parenthood, and the CDC, they both compile figures from abortion providers and state health clinics. And you can go online to either of their websites and find fascinating information, uh, demographic information, on who is having abortions and the reasons that they say they're choosing an abortion. And uh, let me just give you a few demographic facts that I find interesting, uh, troubling, but interesting and important to deal with. One is that 35% of American women who had abortions last year were in their 30s and 40s compared to 9% of those in their teens. Um, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to have lunch with some counselors at Choices Women's Center, and they shared with me that uh, when they originally got counseling training and, and wanted to help counsel at the Women's Center, they thought they would be helping scared teenage girls. And in fact, they ended up helping uh, older women who were in stable romantic relationships, who live in suburban houses and already have a couple of children, they just don't want to have another one, and that fits with the data. According to Planned Parenthood, 40% of women who received abortions from abortion providers last year said they were seeking an abortion because they had completed their childbearing, meaning the child was unexpected, 
and they were done with their family. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression um, that that's a troubling trend that I see. I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, the idea was that we were, the Christians were going to have these pregnancy centers to be an answer on the street and to help, uh, but the picture was painted of, you know, scared teenage mothers who needed help, and that's not the people we're necessarily helping right now, currently. Um, but in the contemporary situation, 85% of women who receive abortions aren't married, and the majority uh, demographically are in their 20s. Um, and honestly, a lot of it is because of the hookup culture. And there are women who feel like they can't say no to men, and we got men who won't father the children that uh, they have, and that has led to the situation we're in now. That's some about our contemporary situation. But what does the Bible say about this issue? How should we, if we're going to follow Jesus, how should we think about this issue? Well, the Bible teaches that human life begins at conception, and the Bible consistently refers to the unborn as persons regardless of their stage of development. Those are bold claims, but let me try and prove them to you from the Bible. First of all, the Bible teaches that human life begins at conception, and I'm going to prove this with a number of supporting arguments. The first argument is this. The Bible portrays God as the ultimate cause of conception, not just the creator of human reproduction. Of course, God created the process of human reproduction uh, in Genesis 1, right? He blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is still active in the creation of all new life and is, in fact, the decisive agent in it because it is He who opens and closes the womb. That's why we read passages like Ruth 4.13, where it says, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Or 1 Samuel 1, verse 20, after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Or Psalm 127, verse 3 says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is His reward. This is why there's language. If you remember when uh, Abraham and Sarah went and stayed with Abimelech, God closed the wombs of the women of Abimelech's house when He took Sarah to be His wife. Uh, husbands and wives count the days, and uh, they do their part, but God is the ultimate cause of conception and new life. And the Scriptures consistently refer to conception as the start of human life. For instance, 11 times uh, just in Genesis alone, Moses combines the word conceive and gave birth to describe the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob having children. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses portrays conception as initiating a new life that then enters the world through birth. One pro-life author has summed it up this way, the biblical writers never say the words, life begins at conception, but they consistently refer to conception as the starting point of a person's life. But Scripture doesn't stop there. It also attributes moral guilt to individuals from the moment of their conception. When David confesses his sin in Psalm 51, he says, behold, I was brought forth, or, or born, 
in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, when David says, in sin my mother conceived me, it wasn't because his mother was in any kind of sexual sin. That's not what he's… His mother uh, was married to his father. David was like the eighth son in the family. Uh, There was no sin going on. That's not why he's saying it. Uh, It's a poetic way in Hebrew of David saying, this sin, this, this part of me that's wayward and wanders, it's part of the core of my very being. It's been with me since conception. He's confessing that his moral nature was already present when he was an embryo. And this is important for our current moment in history because the contemporary pro-abortion movement concedes that life begins at conception but they follow up that concession by saying that the biological life that has been conceived is not a person. But how can you argue that someone isn't a person who has a moral nature? R.C. Sproul explains it this way. In Psalm 51, David recounts his personal moral history to the point of conception. An impersonal being, a collection of cells, cannot be a moral agent. If David's moral history extends back to conception, then his personal history also must extend to the same point. According to Psalm 51, David was a moral person from the moment of his conception. Human life and even personhood begin at conception. And the Bible consistently refers, this is very important, the Bible consistently refers to the unborn as persons regardless of their stage of development. You can see this in both the old and the New Testament. So, let's start in the the Old Testament. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20, if you haven't already, excuse me, Exodus 21 and verse 22. Uh, What's going on here is God is giving His people the law. This isn't in my notes, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, When we think about uh, the law of Moses, I think as Christians, often we think about maybe the Ten Commandments or the sacrificial system, but that's been done away with because Christ has become our once-for-all sacrifice. And we kind of divorce our thinking of, uh, from what was actually going on there. Think about what's happening. This is the first time in history that, God, that the descendants of Abraham are large enough to be a separate nation. God has freed them from slavery in Egypt. He's going to give them a land, and they need to now be a nation, right? But these are people who were slaves that don't have any tradition of practicing statecraft. What are they going to do? Make it up on their own? Argue with each other? Are we going to have a king? Are we going to set it up this way? And so, when God gave them the law… That was an act of compassion on God's part. It wasn't just Him heaping up some kind of moral burden. He was showing them how to be a nation and how to practice statecraft and how to organize the way that the the nation uh, should be organized and what kinds of laws they should have. And in the passage we come to today, He's going to give a case law, right? A number of the laws God gave in the Mosaic Law, they're case laws where He gives an example. You know, if someone's donkey falls into a pit, but it's the Sabbath day and you're supposed to be resting, here's what you should do, right? He, he gives case law, and that's what we've come to here. It's a case law example. Exodus 21, verses 22 and following. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide." 
But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. What's going on in this text? Well, uh, there are two men fighting with each other. A pregnant woman is nearby. One of the men accidentally strikes the pregnant woman, and there are two potential outcomes. The first outcome in verse 22 is that the mother and the child excuse me, let me back. The mother and the fetus are hurt by being struck, and a premature birth follows, but there is no permanent injury to either the mother or the child. In that case, the woman's husband was to determine a financial penalty for the pain and trauma of the event. In verse 23, you have the second outcome, and that is that the mother gives birth to the child prematurely, and there is permanent damage done either to the mother or child or both. In that case, the punishment of the guilty person was to be in keeping with the injury that they had inflicted. Now, before I talk about how that's relevant for our issue we're looking at today, let me just say a few words about these judges. There are judges present, they're mentioned in verse 22. Uh, In the Hebrew grammar, in verse 23, the judges are the one who are assigning a penalty. Why are the judges here? Well, beyond simply making sure things are done legally and justly and peacefully and properly and in order, they are there as a check against the vengeance of the husband. Maybe you've heard at some point in your life a secular person say, an eye for an eye, and we're all blind. And it's meant to sound very profound and very enlightened, and by implication to make the Old Testament look barbaric. But that's actually a bad faith reading of what's going on. That misses the point of what an eye for an eye stood for in the Mosaic law. It was meant to prohibit the powerful and and those who had legal power from using the legal system as a means of inflicting cruel and unusual punishment on their adversaries. If you think it's wise that our nation has laws against cruel and unusual punishment, you should celebrate the idea of an eye for an eye because that's why it's there in the Mosaic Law. It's a check against cruel and unusual punishment. An eye for an eye didn't mean in the Mosaic Law that the plaintiff was required by law to demand an eye for an eye, they still had the option of showing mercy and settling for a lesser punishment or dropping the charges altogether. Now, that's a rabbit, rabbit trail I wanted to go down to make sure we understand that. But the larger point I want to make is this. In these verses, the mother is not the only injured party that's treated like a person under Mosaic law. The unborn baby, the fetus, is treated as a person with all the protections of the law. And harming an unborn baby, even accidentally in a way that led to a premature birth, but the, the baby was nevertheless healthy, even that accidental kind of injury was treated as a crime. And if the child was killed under Mosaic law, it was a form of manslaughter. But now turn over to Luke chapter 1. I want to prove to you the personhood of the unborn from the New Testament as well as the Old. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. Luke 1, 39. The setting here is that the angel has visited Mary and told her that she will be with child by the Holy Spirit 
and give birth to the Lord's Messiah. And right after, and, and then Mary gives that amazing prayer that uh, we call the Magnificat. This is right after her Magnificat. This is what she does next, verse 39 of Luke 1. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord." Uh, So, the setting here is that Mary is with child through the Holy Spirit, and she immediately goes up from Nazareth to travel down to Judah to see her relative Elizabeth. Now, earlier in Luke, we learn that Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, okay, and she's six months pregnant. So, what's going on here is this. Uh, The baby Jesus, in human terms, is an embryo at this stage. John the Baptist is a fetus in his mother's womb. And notice that John the Baptist, who in our terms is a fetus in the womb of Elizabeth, he leapt for joy when he heard Mary's voice. The Scriptures are attributing to the fetus, John the Baptist, both cognition and emotion while he's still in his mother's womb. That points to his personhood. But there's yet another detail that we dare not miss in this passage. The Greek word that we translate baby in verse 41, uh, you see it there, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her. The word baby is used again in verse 44. Uh, Those are both referring to John the Baptist in the womb of his mother. And uh, the Greek word that we're translating there as baby is the word brephos. But now turn over to Luke chapter 2, verse one, uh, 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Luke 2, 12. Uh, the context here, right, is this is when the angels announce Messiah's birth to the shepherds, um, right? And, and Jesus has been born to Mary and Joseph. The angel announces the birth to the shepherds. But the angel needs to give the shepherds a sign because the shepherds are going to go into Bethlehem to try to find this child And there's a lot of babies in Bethlehem, particularly uh, in this moment, because so many people had traveled to Bethlehem for the census, and the shepherds need a sign. So, how is this for a sign? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12 of Luke. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. Now, yes, we know that uh, ancient people lived closer to their animals than we do. Okay, absolutely. But nobody used a feeding trough for a crib unless they were desperate. So this was actually a great sign. It's as if the angel's saying, you go, when you go into town, he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a... He's the only one you'll find lying in a feeding trough. You can't miss him, right? That's the sign that he gives the shepherds. But there's an important detail that I want you to see here. Uh, In English translation, that word baby, you'll find the baby wrapped in cloths. It's the Greek word brephos. It's the same Greek word that we just saw used of John the Baptist while he was in his mother's womb. And what that means is this. 
In the Greek New Testament, there is no distinction between the born and the unborn. They are all alike called babies. Now, this is critical. What I'm pointing out to you is not some kind of linguistic accident. Ancient Greek had words for embryo and fetus, and the New Testament never uses those words. That is by divine intention. In the New Testament, a fetus isn't called a fetus. It's called a baby after it's born. It's called a baby before it's born. No separate word is needed because the unborn baby is a person made in the image of God according to the New Testament. The only people who need separate words are pro-abortionists, like Plato and Aristotle and Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and the New York Times and people who are progressive, right, who are trying to deny the personhood of the unborn. Now, this New Testament reality that the unborn are uh, called babies, just as uh, an infant is, it's not just a New Testament phenomenon. You find the same thing in the Hebrew Old Testament. Back in that negligent manslaughter passage I read for you back from Exodus 21, you notice that uh, the being in the womb of that mother in that passage, uh, in the New American Standard, we translate it as child, and that's because the Hebrew word yeled is used, and it's the same word used in other Old Testament passages to speak of infants, toddlers, and even elementary age children. Hebrew didn't need a separate word for unborn children that could be used by the wicked to deny their personhood, right? Uh, Hebrew didn't need that because the unborn receive equal protection under Mosaic law. John Frame sums up the biblical data this way, there is nothing in Scripture that even remotely suggests that the unborn child is anything less than a human person from the moment of conception. And even science points to the personhood of the unborn. What happens at conception? Well, there's 46 genes that combine, 23 from the mother, 23 from the father, and the immediate result is a genetically unique individual. At two weeks, there's a heartbeat. From the fourth week on, the entire cardiovascular system uh, is developed. The blood in the child's heart that is circulating at that point is blood its own body produced. It may even have a separate blood type from its mother. By seven weeks, the baby has fingers on its hands. It has detectable brain waves and can move, even though it's, it's so small the mother can't feel it moving, it can already move at that point. By nine weeks, the baby has functioning kidneys, unique fingerprints, and its gender can be recognized. By the end of 12th week, uh, the 12th week, which in our reckoning is the first trimester, by the end of the first trimester, the child is fully, fully formed and all their organs and organ systems are functioning. Uh, the baby can even suck its thumb. Uh, and the rest of the pregnancy is just a time where the baby continues to grow and mature. And I'd like to illustrate that for you uh, with a picture. Uh, in 1965, Leonard Nielsen found a way to illuminate 
the womb and take pictures of the developing life in the womb. Uh, and then Life magazine published his pictures. And what's so remarkable, uh, this is one of them, what's so remarkable is this was the first time in human history when we could look in the womb and see the developing life that was there. So it's only been since 1965 that we had access to see pictures like this. And the picture, uh, the, the question I want to ask you as you look at this picture is this, what will you call that? The Greek New Testament, with a, a word in Greek available for fetus, calls that a baby. It calls it a brephos. The Bible teaches that human life begins at conception, and the Bible consistently refers to the unborn as persons regardless of their stage of development, and I think you can see that uh, with your own eye why that's right uh, in this picture. So, in light of these realities then, in light of what the Bible teaches, what should we do? What are some practical implications for us? Well, first of all, I think we need to start with us. Abortion should not be named among us, right? The government can make abortion uh, legal, they can call it a right, and they could, e they could even, if they wanted, make it available for free. That doesn't mean we have to take them up on it, right? We can honor God with our bodies by having mothers who carry their children to birth and by having fathers who are engaged and supportive and encourage mothers to do that. Number two, I would recommend that you work at knowing what you believe about this issue. You've heard my arguments here from the pulpit, but how would you argue for protecting the life of the unborn? What would you say to those who deny that the developing baby is life, or who would concede that it is a kind of biological life, but it's only a kind of potential biological life. That was part of the argumentation in the Roe v. Wade decision. Or what would you say to those who concede that it is truly a kind of biological life, but that that biological life isn't a person? Uh, what will your arguments be? Number three, pray to God to forgive our nation and bring about a cultural and legal repentance that protects the unborn. Uh, I think we can do a lot through prayer. And then when it comes to politics, number four, know where the candidates stand on the issue and take that into consideration when you vote. Elections have consequences. And currently in Virginia, abortions are legal up to 23 weeks at Planned Parenthood, and uh, third trimester abortions are legal provided two doctors sign off. And I believe we need to pray and even vote for that to change. And then number five, you can help our local pregnancy center. Choices Women's Center is doing good work in our community, but they need money, they need resources, they need volunteers. They are an answer on the street that connects mothers with the resources they need so they don't have to go through a pregnancy alone. And as a center, they offer free pregnancy testing, free testing for, well, actually, I'm going to give you a list here, and everything I list is available for free. They make it available for free. They offer uh, pregnancy testing, ultrasounds, STI testing, that's the new name for STDs. Uh, they offer prenatal medical consultations, classes and referrals. They offer classes, classes on marriage and relationships, 
parenting. They offer post-abortion counseling. They give away free diapers, free formula uh, for infants. Um, They offer a wealth of resources for free, but in order to continue their work, they need volunteers, they need money, and they need resources. And if you feel led to volunteer for them, if if this is something that you take an interest in, uh, our leadership wants to commend them to you because we believe they're doing a good work in our community. Well, let's pray.